morning, everyone. This morning is um, uh, family uh, church uh, family t- uh, Sunday, which means that the children will be in the service. However, in the back, on the other side of the the, uh, the median, there will be paper for the children to color and coloring uh, utensils and things like that. So you're free to have your children go back there as well. Jesus doesn't make up the difference. He makes all the difference. So it says in Wright's Brad Wilcox, To many people, Jesus is important, but not essential. Jesus has a place in their lives, but not first place. Jesus is prominent, but not preeminent. These are not Paul's words, but they could very well be Paul's words as he was writing to the church in Colossae because certain heresies had been introduced in the church that diminished the supremacy of Christ. And as a result, it diminished their experience of the sufficiency of Christ. We have a high view of the supremacy of God. We have a low view or low experience level of the sufficiency of Christ. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, I have a great need for Christ. I have a great Christ for my need. I like that quote. I have a great need for Christ, in other words, for his sufficiency. But I have a great Christ, his supremacy, for my need. So unless we see the greatness of the supremacy of Christ, we won't experience as much his sufficiency in our lives. And that's what the letter of Colossians is all about. So let's read together, if you'll stand with me. Uh, read together Colossians 3, 1 to 17. You can use your booklets with it for that. Colossians 3, 1 to 17. <clears throat> Starting with the first one. So if you have been raised with the Messiah, seek what is above, where the Messiah is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on what is above, not on what is on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with the Messiah and God. When the Messiah, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your worldly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath comes on the disobedient. And you once walked in these things where you, when you were living in them. But now you must put away all, all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your Creator. In Christ there is not Greek and Jew, Circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, God's chosen ones, holy and loved, put on heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, accepting one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Above all, put on love the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of the Messiah, to which you were also called in one body, control 
your hearts. Be thankful. Let the message about the Messiah dwell richly among you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You may be seated. May God bless his word. I would like to point out right away that you'll notice some similarities with the message this morning and with the message of last week by Pastor Steve. And that's because some verses overlap. Uh, They were both a good conclusion for the verses preceding it that Pastor Steve talked about and a good introduction for what I'll be talking about today. So if you see some similarities, you'll know that this is a different message, even though there's some similar words. So the challenge from the scriptures this morning is coming to understand and apply the sufficiency of Christ in three ways. The first challenge is the irreversible order for experiencing the sufficiency of Christ. Or in other words, you will find Christ sufficient when you start with the done rather than the do. And the second challenge is our union with Christ in experiencing Christ's sufficiency. And the paraphrase of that is, we will find Christ is sufficient when we see ourselves united with him in his death and resurrection. And the third challenge, the high road and the low road in experiencing the sufficiency of Christ. We will find Christ is sufficient when we focus on things above rather than on things below. So let's begin with the first challenge that we have before us, the irreversible order for experiencing the sufficiency of Christ. Let's say you're reading The Lord of the Rings, and uh, you want to skip the first two books, maybe start in the last book, even the last part of the last book. Well, you'll be greatly disappointed because you won't know what's going on. Uh, You may have read, you may read at the end something about Sauron, you know, he's the bad guy. And, uh, but you're asking yourself, what's the connection between him and the ring? And uh, you see the hobbits there, who are the hobbits, and why are they the central people in this book? And on and on and on. So when you don't read the trilogy in order, you're going to miss a lot of information. Well, there's another book that is important to read in the right order, and that's, of course, the Bible. And I'm not talking about chronologically, reading chronologically. I'm talking about a little theological principle called the gospel indicative and the gospel imperative. Now, you may not like grammar. If so, you're like me. I don't like grammar either. But in this case, it's important to realize because there's something in this particular principle that makes all the difference in the world as we interpret Scripture and as we put Scripture and we apply Scripture to our lives. If we reverse this order, the done and the do, or the gospel indicative and the gospel imperative, we will become very discouraged as Christians. And we will not know what to do with that discouragement, because we keep on going back through the same routine of going to the commands. Or we will become legalistic and try to live by the rules, and we will not experience the sufficiency of Christ. 
So what is this gospel indicative and the gospel imperative? What do these terms actually mean? The gospel indicative are statements about what God has done for us and of who we are in Christ as a result. What he has done for us and who we are in Christ as a result. The gospel imperative is the do. Statements about what we should do by faith based on what Christ has done already for us. Let me give you three examples. Having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness in Romans 6. That is the gospel indicative. It's the fact. It's the truth. I have been set free from sin. There's no question about that. That's been done. You have nothing to do with that. Christ did it all. Therefore, and this is the imperative, therefore, based on that, the done, now present your bodies as slaves of, to righteousness. So the done always comes before the do. Another example in Galatians 5.25, since we live by the Spirit, in other words, we're alive by the Spirit, that's a, that's a gospel indicative, that is what is true, that's a fact. Then the imperative is, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So a third example would be in uh, 2 Corinthians. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. That is the gospel indicative. That's a fact. That's what God is doing. Therefore, be reconciled to God. If God is doing this, since he's doing this, be reconciled to God. So you have... Both of these, the gospel indicative and the gospel imperative, are always working together, but they're not reversible. In Scripture, it's like this. Since this is true, then this is what you must do. Sounds sort of poetic, doesn't it? If this is true, this is what you must do. In Scripture, the, incent- the indicatives are the power and the promise behind the imperative. Since we live, are alive by the Spirit, that is the power and the promise behind walk and step with the Spirit. The imperative usually flows from and depends on the addictive. Since we live by the Spirit, the indicative, then let us keep in step with the Spirit. That is what we should do. James Dunn has written in a very succinct sentence, What Christ has done is the basis for what the believer must do, not the opposite. Because God works and has worked, this is by Herman Ritterboss, because God works and has worked, therefore man must and can work. We often talk about what is God's part, what is man's part in our growth, or even in salvation. God's part is what man could never do. Jesus did die and rise again. But we can do what he commands us to do because of what he has done. So what has God done that we must do, according to Paul, in Colossians 3, 1-4 that we've read this morning? In verse 1 and 2, we have this raised, we have this, you know, these words. So if you have been raised with the Messiah, that is the indicative, that's the truth. That is what God has done. He is raised with the, we have been raised with the Messiah. So what's to do? Seek what is above, 
Seek your minds, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So we have been raised with Christ. That is something that God has done. Based on that, then, seek what is above. Set your minds on things that are above. We could not set our minds on what is above or set our mind, seek what is above or set our minds on the above if we were not raised with Christ. So it's dependent. The indicative is dependent. The indicative is what precedes the imperative, and that is dependent on the indicative. Then in verses 3 and 4, you have a second done passage. For you have died, and your life is hidden with the Messiah in God. Again, this is what God has done. You have died, and your life is hidden with the Messiah and God. So what is the imperative? What must we do? Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. So we have the done and the do. And we will never go far in our Christian life unless we realize what the difference is. Because if we always start in the do when we are in a problem or we're under trial or when we're in difficulty, we'll always end up being more frustrated than ever. We'll become legalistic, possibly. So it begins with the done, and it goes over to the do in that order. This is an incredibly important principle for interpreting correctly Scripture and for experiencing the resources that we have in Christ. Our instinct says that who we are before God is based on what we do for God. In other words, our performance. And the world affirms this. It, op- it operates on the principle of behavior determines your identity. Who you are is dependent on what you do. For example, if somebody asks you, uh, who are you? You know, what is your name? They're probably thinking about that. You're probably your first response is, or many of us would describe ourselves by what we do. Maybe like, I'm a school teacher, I'm an accountant, a carpenter, a construction worker. And the subtle message is, your behavior determines your identity. Because I work with wood, that's my behavior, I'm a carpenter, that's my identity. But that's not how it works biblically. The biblical order is completely opposite. It starts with our identity what God has done, what God has given to us, and then influences our behavior. Who we are determines what we do is not true. Therefore, in our minds, or who we are determines what we do is is true. Therefore, in our minds and conversation, we need to keep on, keep ourselves from confusing these two, the who and the do, or the done and the do. Because otherwise, as I mentioned before, we'll either go into legalism or we'll become totally discouraged and frustrated as Christians. Focusing only on the commands to become holy becomes a whip or a rod on our backs or on other people's backs. You must do this to be accepted by God. We've seen our own failure and we've seen the imperatives to holiness. Do this, do that. And as a result, we go back to the commands and say we have to try harder. But that's not where we have to go back to. We have to go back to the done. What has God done? Guilt and discouragement follows because we have neglected the great indicatives of Scripture and the gospel that sustain those imperatives. So by way of application for this part, what can we do? My suggestion would be 
Whenever you see a do in Scripture, command, ask the Spirit to show you where the indicative is, where the done is. And then by faith, do what you are commanded to do, depending on the done of Christ. Remember, you will find Christ is sufficient and experience Christ is sufficient when you start with the done and move to the do. And what bridges the gap between the done and the do is faith. You see a do, you say, how can I ever do that? You look back and see what the done is. Ah, okay, I believe that. Then I can do it. So faith is what binds them together. The second challenge to understanding and applying the sufficiency of Christ is our union with Christ and experiencing the sufficiency of Christ. I dare say we are more familiar with the phrase, Christ died for us, and we rose, or he rose for us, than with the phrase, I died with Christ, or I rose with Christ. It's a little bit more easy to understand, Christ died for me, than to say and understand, I died with him, and I rose with him. For example, for all, of all the things that Christ has saved us, when he died and rose again, is an incredible study, an incredible amount of encouragement. What did, what did Christ die for when he, when he died for us? He saved us from eternal death. He substituted his life for ours. Substitution. He substituted his life for us. So he saved us from eternal death. Very often we talk about salvation. Often we talk about salvation. But do we really know what we've been saved from? Another thing is he saved us from being destroyed by God's wrath. His death satisfied the required punishment. This we call propitiation. He saved us from the guilt of our sins. This we call expiation. He saved us from alienation from God. This we call reconciliation. He saved us from slavery to sins, past penalty, present power, and future presence. That's what we call redemption. He saved us from the, re- the condemning record of debt against us. That we call justification. He saved us out of the family of Satan. That is adoption. He saved us from the power and authority of Satan and sin. That is called victory. Have you, maybe I should say, when was the last time you listened to the song by Andrew Peterson, Is He Worthy? It's a tremendous song. And after saying and repeating and reminding us of all the things that Christ has done for us, what can we say? Who is worthy? With resounding uh, voice, we would say, Jesus Christ, he is worthy. He is worthy. Just as we wouldn't experience, though, the sufficiency of Christ if he had not died for us, So we won't experience his sufficiency if we had not died with him. They're very important. Christ not only died for us, but we died with him. He not only rose again for us, but we rose with him. They're just as important. And this is a great mystery. Colossians 3.3 says, You have died, and your life is hidden with Messiah and God. Warren Wiersbe writes about this in one of his books. Years ago, I heard a story about two sisters who enjoyed attending wild parties. Then they were converted and found new life in Christ. 
They received later an invitation to a party and sent their RSVP in these words. We regret that we cannot attend because we recently died. Can you imagine receiving that as an RSVP? RSVP? We can't attend because we recently died. I don't know if this is a, a joke or whether they also believe this. But anyway, it probably created a lot of questions. So what we have is you have died, and then we say, therefore put to death what belongs to your worldly nature. This is, I admit, a huge mystery. It's true, but it's a big mystery. For example, how can we put to death what is already dead? I have been crucified with Christ, but we're supposed to put to death these activities. How can you put to death something that's already died? That's a big question. Then again, when did I die? If I died with Christ 2,000 years ago, that means I died before my birth on earth. Now, part of the problem is that we're looking at it solely, only on a physical, material level. But it's still a mystery. We can't penetrate all that is involved in that. However, the point is, I want you to see the depth and the hugeness of this mystery and the greatness of this mystery. It is true. And God is the one who fulfills it when we obey him and when we trust him. But the answer is found in another mystery. I know now a little bit of why Winston Churchill said, for a different reason, this, it is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. But perhaps there is a cue, a clue. It's called Christ is my representative. Have you ever noticed couples conversation in public when the wife is pregnant? Susan and I experienced this as well, and you all have seen this. They say, we, we are pregnant. <laughs> and so you wonder, what? <laughs> is, the, is the husband pregnant as well? And the wife is pregnant? We are pregnant. Now, that's an impossibility, logically and physically, right? But it's an expression of solidarity and identification with the wife, Right? The wife represents them both in this way. And so we are together in this. We are pregnant, even though logically and physically it's not true. But it is true in that she represents the family. Or at the end of a football game, the fans of the winning team go away yelling, We won! We won! Did they really win? They were not the ones on the field getting bloodied, running into one another, trying to catch a ball and falling down, getting muddy, and so on and so forth, sweating. Um, The team did all the work. The fans did nothing except eat popcorn and yell. (laughs) So the team is what really made the difference. The fans had nothing to do with the work. The, The team did all of the work. And yet, they are included in the victory, not by physically doing the job, but by being included in the victory by the representative, their team, what their team accomplished. And their team did it. They didn't do it. And you know, there's sort of a similarity between 
um, this example in Christ, who is our representative, because Christ represents the team in a matter, matter of speaking. Because he represents the team, we can say, we died with him. We rose with him. We are identified with him, just as the fans are identified with the team, and just like the husband is identified with the wife. There's a similar idea here, because he represents us. When we say, we died with Christ, it's true. And when we say, we rose with him, it's true. He did all the work, just like the team did all the work. And so we put our trust in him, just as the fans put their trust in their team. And Christ wins all the time. Now, I realize this analogy just touches the surface. The deeper mystery is that we are united with him in a spiritually organic way. We are hidden in Christ with a thought in Christ. Do you see yourself in Christ? No. Do you see Christ in you? No, because you're hidden in Christ. You don't see the physical part of it. You don't see the material part of it because we are hidden in Christ. And yet it is still true. We, are, we died with him. We rose with him. So as we think about this, we can, with this section, apply it in this way. Ephesians 1.3 says, Praise the God of Abraham, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. We will find Christ is sufficient when we see ourselves united with him in his death and resurrection. All these blessings that we have in Christ that Paul talked about, we will find Christ as sufficient when we take those blessings and say, Lord, I don't see this. I don't feel it. I can't draw a figure of it. I can't do anything with the, in, the physical, in the invisible world, but I still believe it. And if you don't have faith, ask the Holy Spirit to give you the faith to believe, because faith comes from God anyway. Well, the third challenge to understand and apply the sufficiency of Christ is the high road and the low road in experiencing the sufficiency of Christ. I want you to notice in verses uh, 1 to 4, we have the command, or we have the indicative, we have been uh, raised with Christ. And then what's the imperative? There's two things. Set, seek your mind, seek what is above, and set your minds on what is above. Seek what is above... And set your minds on what is above. And notice that seeking comes before setting. You seek what is above, and you set your minds on things that are above. We will find Christ is sufficient when we focus on the things above rather than on things below. So once we have found what we are seeking, then we set our minds on what we have found like finding the pearl of great price. We set our minds on it. We think about it again and again. We try to apply it again and again. We seek it above what is above, and we set our minds on it. So what are the things that are above, and what are the things that are below? Things that are below. Let me just share with you, if you want, or if you want to look, 
in um, Colossians 3, starting with verse 5 and going to verse 11. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your worldly nature. This is what is below. This is your old man. This is the uh, old nature. This is the sin nature. That is what is below. Anger, wrath, malice, slander. That is in verse 8. And filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your Creator. In Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and all are free, but Christ is all in all. So this whole, chap- this whole section talks about what is below. And other places in Scripture talk about it in other terms, like I mentioned, the earthly nature, the old self, the sinful nature. So when we are, we are not to set, seek those, we are not to set our minds on those. We've already done that in the world that we live, and the world has done that around us. That is their way of living. So what is, uh, what is above? What are the things that are above? Verse 12, Therefore God's chosen ones, holy and loved. Interesting. Here is your indicative. This is the done. This is what is true about us, what God has made true of us. God's chosen ones, holy and loved. And then the command, put on heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And why are these things considered above? Because that's where Christ is. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And we have been raised with Christ in a way that we don't understand yet. But we've been raised with Christ. Those are the things that are above because they're where Christ is. Accepting one another, forgiving one another. And if everyone, anyone has a complaint against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Above all, put on love, the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of the Messiah, to which you were called in one body, control your hearts, be thankful. Let the message about the Messiah dwell richly among you, teaching and admonishing one another, and all wisdom and singing in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. This morning during our worship time, we were thinking about the things of, of above. We were setting our minds on the things of above. We were setting our hearts on the things of above and worship. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now there's another way we can look at the things that are above. In Matthew 6, we... We hear of the, we read the, uh, the prayer of Jesus that Jesus gave his, his disciples. And he says, Jesus says, This is how you should pray. Hallowed be your name. On, he- in, in, on earth as it is in heaven. We are praying that God's name would be hallowed on earth as it is in heaven. And this is what is above. We're praying that on earth would become what is like, is like above. We want what is above to come on earth. That is what we're praying. The things that are above, putting it into our, into our lives. We are praying that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. What is above? We are praying that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is above? So even in our prayers, we seek the things that are above, and we set our hearts on things that are above.
And in Ephesians 1, 3 again, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing, where? In the heavenly places, the things of above. So what are the blessings? If we don't know the blessings of Christ, we're not going to be able to experience his abundance, his sufficiency. We are to seek these blessings and then set our hearts and minds on them. It's, these are things that are above. Just as we seek what is above when we pray the Lord's Prayer and set our minds and hearts on it, we do this as well using something like Ephesians 1. What are all the blessings? There's at least six or eight, maybe seven in Ephesians 1 that are life-transforming blessings. But if we set our minds on those and we seek those, we will experience more the sufficiency of Christ in our lives. Then one last verse that I'd like to give to you is in 2 Peter 1.3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him. Everything we need is something that is above. His divine power has given us everything. So we are to seek the everything that we need for a godly life and then set our hearts and minds on it. This is an example of things above. And this is an example of how we experience it through prayer, through singing, through worship, and through just our conversations with one another, building one another up. So as we conclude this, this morning, I'd like to leave you with a challenge of my own, but it comes from Scripture. First question, there are two questions. One question, first is, is Christ supreme in your life at this moment? In other words, is Jesus important but not essential in your life? Does Jesus have a place in your life but not first place? Is Jesus prominent but not preeminent in your life? If you answered yes, then he is not supreme in your life. And as a result, you're not going to be able to experience all the sufficiency. So the second question is, is Christ sufficient in your life? As you face the challenges, the uncertainties, the trials, the difficulties of life, number one, do you habitually start with the done of Christ's work or do you start with the do of God's command? Both of them for God, from God. But it's important where you start. The order is important. Second question, do you remind yourself that you're, when you're in trials and tribulations, do you remind yourself that you're united with Christ in his death and his resurrection? I am dead with Christ. I have been raised with Christ. And thirdly, do you focus on the things above rather than the things below? Are you seeking the things above and setting your mind on the things above rather than on the things below? May God grant us spiritual success as we seek to make Christ supreme in our lives and as we seek his sufficiency in our lives as well. May God bless his word. Amen.